Welcome to a special episode of the Bakari Sellers Podcast. Today, we got two special guests on our show, which is rare for us. We used to do it a lot, but we might get back to it. I have Reggie Brown, who is one of the best illustrators in the world, who is illustrating my book, Due Out Tomorrow, Who Are Your People? And then I have civil rights legend and luminary, none other than the Reverend Al Sharpton, who's here to talk about his book as well. Here we are, the week before King Holiday, talking about two books. Hopefully, you go out and get both. But this is a special episode. Two brothers that I love and adore. I hope you enjoy. And welcome to another episode of the Bakari Sellers Podcast. Today is a special episode because I get to use this platform that we have at The Ringer to introduce many of you all to somebody who is one of the most talented brothers I know. We just uh, became partners in crime over the past few months, um, and we're looking to change the entire landscape of children's books, uh, and hopefully we are just starting this journey, but none other than Reggie Brown. What's going on, my brother? How are you? Thanks for having me on your show. Now, I'm glad to be here. You know, Reggie is, when I say partner in crime, uh, tomorrow, uh, who are your people? Many of you all have seen me post about it. Many of you all have seen me mention his name. But who are your people comes out of hit stores. And Reggie Brown is the person who illustrated it. And, you know, when you follow him, you see that he does dope art just on the weekends because that's what he feels like doing. So, Reggie, my first question is talk to me about the arc of your career. How did you end up in this space where there aren't that many black men, but in this illustration artist area where you're now doing dope projects like Who Are Your People? I guess it started, uh, I've been drawing since um, I could remember, since um, I could hold a pencil. Um, <laughs> and I got into it, I was actually working in a totally different field. It wasn't in art at all. I was working in a, a biotech here in San Diego and um, I got laid off in 2018, right before the pandemic. And I was just turning 40. And I was sitting at home trying to figure out what I wanted to do. And uh, I was thinking about just getting another biotech job and just, you know, just going back in the corporate world. And basically, you know, it was, uh, I've always wanted to do something with my art. And so it was a, I had perfect time. I didn't have any commitments. Um, we had enough money saved up where we could float for a while. My wife, you know, gave me her blessing <laughs> and I just, <laughs> I just kind of, you know, just started drawing and posting on Instagram and I just started getting towards my art towards, uh, children's illustration, you know? And I just started posting more children's illustrations on my Instagram. And that's when I found my agent or my agent found me, um, Christy, uh, from the K agency. And, uh, she just sent me an email and, uh, we, we talked, she signed me up. And then a few months later, uh, I got my first, you know, um, freelance gig for, uh, Penguin Random House for the Magnificent Makers by, uh, Theanne Griffin, uh, and it just been, it just took off after that. I was, I got laid off 2018 and 2019. I, it was like a few months later. That's, a, I mean, it sounds like somewhat of a blessing because you got laid off and then you, 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 you found your passion. 
that uh, you could do during the middle of a pandemic. I mean, you could literally draw during the middle of a pandemic. Talk to me about your process before we get into who are your people. Talk to me about your process and and some of the uh, how do you get from point A to point B? Do you spend time and do you smoke weed and get high and then be like, I need to draw like this? Or do you take some (laughs) Hennessy or do you just do you go look at parts or watch Nickelodeon? What's your process for how you draw and you are able to match your images to such uh, powerful words on paper? I kind of, I like to listen to a lot of music. So it just depends on, um, you know, some music gets you hyped and some music gets you mellow and some, you know, makes you feel certain things and stuff like that. And when I'm uh, doing a picture book, I usually try to find like a soundtrack to it. You know, it's kind of weird to, um, explain this but it's just like you know books all have their rhythm and they have their flow and so and and music is like that too so it's kind of like telling a story which a picture book is and so i just kind of just like just trying to match it up with 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 songs and and just the feelings of the of of a song that i get you know from the picture book and i just kind of just go like that i mean Okay. It's just, it's, Ask, there's not asking, really a process. Asking an artist to explain their process. <laughs> they're, all, they're always like, dude, I'm an artist. It, it shit just kind of pops out. It just comes as it, as we yeah, go. Basically. You, you won't understand it. Are, are there any influences that you have in art? Um, are there any, I'm new to the children's book game. Um, this is, this is new. This is my first foray, but are there any, um, when you got involved or the art that you've been doing since you could hold up a pencil, who are your artistic influences and why? Well, I, I was a big uh, uh, comic book fan. So uh, a lot of the old school comic book uh, artists were um, big influences um, like uh, Jack Kirby, uh, Stan, uh, not Stan Lee, but um, Jim Lee. Um, there's also uh, Norman Rockwell was a big influence of mine. You know, just the, the the four turtles, Michelangelo, Leonardo, and uh, Raphael. <laughs> you know, those guys are big influences. And also, like, um, a lot of the cartoons from the 80s, you know, just like um, Transformers, G.I. Joe. You know, I'm just, I'm an 80s kid. So a lot of that was just the biggest influence on my life. Oh, that's pretty artistically. dope. Um, and and when, you're, when you're writing um, and you're trying to bring life to words, Talk to me about the colors that you use. I've gone back and looked at some of your, you also have a free coloring book on your website, reggiebrownart.com for everybody who's out there. But talk about the colors that you use and how you match those colors up with the words and the images. They seem to, they seem to pop or does that just come to you through music too? What is that called? Synesthesia? You like see colors and stuff or, or whatever? Or not no, see no, colors, no, no. but you, 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 uh, you smarter than I am. I like that. Um, it just kind of comes to me. Just kind of what, it, what I want it to the mood I wanted to evoke for that uh, illustration. So it was kind of, what, you know. What project uh, is, is who are your people? What number project is that for you? Oh, um, six, I think. Six. And, and what makes each one of those projects different in your opinion? I mean, how do you, how do you choose which project you say yes to versus which one you say no to? Cause I'm sure that some people have, come to you with projects and you've just been like, nah, this ain't, this ain't Reggie Brown. Well, first is usually my schedule. You know, uh, it depends on my schedule. And then in the manuscript, um, I just gotta, I, I just gotta really connect to the, to the manuscript. Um, I like a lot more, um, 
whimsical and lyrical stuff. Um, I just like more fantastic, fantastical elements and stuff of uh, a manuscript. Uh, just something that I can like, there's not a lot of uh, concrete visuals, you know, something I can play around with, you know, or something that I can like create in. So that's, that's what really, really uh, gets me going. Like if I want to say yes to a manuscript and yours was, yours was like the perfect one because, you know, there's, is very broad, you know, and, and I just had, you know, just tons of room to play and create and stuff. So it was, it was, it was a great um, project for me to sink my teeth into. Now you definitely did some creating. We'll, we'll, we will uh, get to some of those pages uh, in a minute. Talk to me about being a black male in this industry, especially with children's books. And, and when you're telling these stories, uh, do you feel some extra responsibility? Talk, talk to me about, because there, there are I when we were coming with artists, when people had artists for me to choose from, there weren't many black men for me to choose from. Um, I was happy I found you and your work. But talk to me about that that onus and that responsibility. I didn't know this at the time, but I, I, I there's this uh, organization called SCBWI, Society of Children's Book Illustrators uh, and Writers, and so I joined up and I went to one of their meetings, and um, they have local chapters, and it is. 95% uh, white women. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, and there's hardly any, there's hardly any men at the chapter I went to and there's no uh, other black men there other than myself. I think there was probably two other black females there. Um, and, and it's pretty much like that because I went to the one in San Diego and I also went to the one in Austin, Texas. And it's kind of the same uh, situation. So you're just kind of out there by your, everyone's very nice. And, you know, but you're just kind of, you notice uh, who's in the room basically. And so there's, <laughs> there's basically, there's a lot of, I wouldn't say pressure, but there's, you know, there's, there's just a lot of, um, I'm just mindful of, of, of where I'm at and, and the opportunity I have, you know, and um, it's it, it's I want to see it's we need a, a lot more black illustrators and and writers in this in this field. It's just it's there's just not a lot. Of us. No, I mean, I, I tell people that all the time. One of the reasons that I wrote Who Are Your People is because I wanted, um, you know, young people of color to be able to see themselves in the pictures. And so let's get into Who Are Your People really quickly. Uh when you did the cover and you, you laid, how did you start the, did you start at the beginning? Did you start from the first page? Did you start with the cover? How did you start this process? Um, the first page um, and then work from there. And sometimes I jump around. So there's some things that will, um, I really want to draw right away. So I'll, I'll do that. But the first, the first page is where I started on your book. Um, our, our book. Our book. <laughs> our book, sorry. <laughs> Yeah, so I started with that, and I just wanted to get the feeling of the, uh, yeah, you know, just the, I just wanted to set the tone for the book. At IKEA, your dream home is a blue bag away. No matter the size of your space or budget, we've got everything you need to turn your dreams into reality. And now with new lower prices on hundreds of our most popular products, bringing the dream home is even easier. Like the gray Strandom wing chair was three sixty nine, now two ninety nine. And the IKEA Plus 365 nine-piece cookware set was $129.99, now $89.99. And hundreds more. Shop new lower prices at ikea-usa.com today. 
you you utilize images in here from Remembrance Park to you know on the second page here uh, you have King. Uh, you have Muhammad, you have Muhammad Ali, you have Stacy. I mean, you just have all of these great luminaries. I'm holding it up here. Uh, what, what, what made you decide to put those individuals in the clouds and choose those individuals? Um, I don't know. It just came to me. I, I, I was just trying to, um, you know, cause just who are your people? And, um, I'm just trying to figure out who are, who are your people? And, yeah. um, and it just came to, you know, I don't know how to describe it. Just our, our people are these, you know, wonderful, amazing, sometimes luminaries. And, um, and I just wanted to display that, you know, and, and that's why I put them in the clouds and stuff like that. And, and I picked some of the, um contemporary and some more current yeah that's what that's the that's one of my favorite parts is that we we go back and we have some of the heroes that we talk about all the time and then we have some of the contemporaries as well one of my favorites though is something that not many people talk about uh, and we want to educate people in this book too but we have february 1st 1960 here uh at the woolworths lunch counter uh or the mccory's five and dime here i mean talk to me about how you chose to you know lay out a lot of these historical facts well i was um you know i was just going off your words and i was just thinking of like just images i wanted to depict and i wanted to depict some of the the struggles and 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 the woolworths um lunch counter images were like very striking to me when i was researching and um just trying to get a feel for um some of the the images i wanted to do, uh display in the book and and that was one of them. One of them was that. Um, I just kind of went with that, you know. It, it was just, it was just like one of the images that just, just I really wanted to put down in the book. No, you did it well. Um, uh, that image is probably one of the one of the many images, along with the words, that's going to get this book banned. But we'll talk about that later. Uh, and this, I this is probably what I believe to be the most powerful image. Uh, this image in the uh, "Where are you from?" in the cotton fields. Um, and you know, one of the questions I ask is when they ask you, where are you from? Uh, you were from a land where the soil is dark and matches the richness of your skin, where cotton and sugar cane were strongly rooted and match your strength and determination. What, I mean, that was a, talk to me about that picture, that image. Uh, for me, that was, you know, as we down South people always ask, who are your people and where are you from? That's how they get to know you. Um, and that black soil, that richness of the soil and that cotton, that picture is just gorgeous, man. Talk to me about that one. I mean, I, I, I don't want to be a broken record, but it just kind of, I just kind of saw it in my head. Yeah. You know? I just, I just read your words and that's the, that's the first, that's just the picture that came to my mind. You know, it was just this, uh, I wanted to just feel the, the pain, but also there's hope, you know, there's also and I just wanted to to match those those two things up, and that was just the 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 image I got. Um, I was listening to the the Selma album and Glory. That song was just playing. Yeah, this sure. I was getting that, and it was just that you know, just uh, you know, our people just toiling away, and but you know they're in this it's very dark and oppressive place, but they also have 
you know, hope for the future, you know? Well, throughout this process, I would get images and pages uh, as they would go through and mark off stuff and have questions about some things and send some notes back and pictures back to Reggie and Reggie was knocking it out. Talk to me. How long does this process take you? How long did this process take you? It took, it usually takes like six, eight months. Uh, but, uh, your book landed on my desk and, um, it just really spoke to me and your timetable, the timetable was kind of short. So we kind of knocked it out in like what? Three, three months? Maybe? Yeah. Three, four months. months at most. Yeah. 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 So, so I was really jamming on it. I was just, you know, just, just, um, I was actually doing two different projects. I was doing yours in a different project at the same time. So I was just really just, just, uh, just late nights, lots of coffee. <laughs> well, we thank you for that, brother. We're going we're gonna to push this thing out and hopefully have a New York Times bestseller. Talk to me about any upcoming projects you got, any projects. Talk about your last few projects, where you want people to find your work, um, and what's next for you. Uh, I have, my next picture book is coming out. It's called uh, Kicks by uh, Van Garrett. Uh, should be coming out in uh, April. Um, it's about uh, boys' love of sneakers <laughs> and shoe and the shoe game and all that stuff, sneakerhead. Um, that's coming out from Versify. Uh, you can find me on Instagram, Twitter at Reggie Brown Art. Uh, that's where I post all my stuff. I'm on Facebook, but I don't really interact too much on there. But um, yeah, and I also uh, illustrated uh, a few chap uh, middle grade books called The Magnificent Makers by Deanne Griffith. And um, you just can find that at any bookstore, Amazon uh indie bookstore and are you gonna um do some more uh are you gonna do some more of uh the iterations of bakari sellers who are your people because if this does well we're gonna knock out a few more reggie so i need you on board oh he's here <laughs> here for ready. sure thank you thank you so much my brother this has been reggie brown on the bakari sellers podcast we have a new book coming out tomorrow entitled who are your people i want to take some time so you could get to know the illustrator my brother and thank you so much for joining us man Many of you all know my father was uh, one of the co-founders of a small fledgling civil rights organization called SNCC back in the day. And I am a child of the movement. So it's an honor to have one of the heroes of the movement on the show today. None other than the Reverend Al Sharpton. How you doing today, my brother? I'm doing great, Bukari. Honored and glad to be with you. And your father was one of my heroes when I was growing up in the movement. And uh, you uh you cannot emphasize enough how much Cleveland Sellers was a role model for those of us that were uh, younger guys. Uh, I started in SCLC in New York. I'm a northerner. Uh, but uh, we watched with him and uh, Stokely and John Lewis and that generation <laughs> did. Uh, just like they watched Dr. King, who was like 10, 15 years older than them, they were like 10, 15 years older than me. So they were my role models. You know, usually, we start each episode by asking um, our guests to walk us through the arc of their career. But I feel like people generally know who you are, but maybe less likely or less familiar with your origin story. Talk to us about what events early in your life shaped your activism and your politics. And at what point did you realize that both the ministry and social justice would be your calling? And I got a follow up question to that, too. All right. Well, I started born and raised in Brooklyn, New York. 
Uh, Flounder was a businessman, real estate, owned real estate, owned the corner store. He and my mother uh, moved to Queens, New York, when he started doing well. But when I was 10, he left us, abandoned us. Uh, so my mother had to move my sister and I back to Brooklyn. But this time we moved into the projects for a few months and then got a, a place in Brownsville. And my mother had to raise us uh, from when I was 10 on, on welfare food stamps. I think uh, that prompted my activism. I had already been a boy preacher. I started preaching the Church of God in Christ. First sermon, I was four years old. And uh, preaching. Well, you were, you were, you were coaching? I was coaching. I started Man, Washington. Man, they don't, they, y'all stay in, y'all stay in church all day long, Reverend Sharp. All day long, all <laughs> week long. <laughs> and uh, uh, I started as a boy preacher, Washington Temple Church of God in Christ. By the time I was seven, I was doing the circuit. Time I was nine, I did a couple of cities with gospel great mama, I mean, um, I'm Jackson. So I was in the church uh, where I had seen Dr. King and others who came to our church. Uh, so when we moved back to Brooklyn, uh, but this time in the project, I think that stirred my activism because I saw the difference in zip code. I was asking the uh, kids my age in the neighborhood, uh, why is all that garbage piled up? They said, oh, they pick up the garbage on Saturday. Well, where I lived in Queens, they pick it up twice a day. Uh, people call an emergency uh, for emergency room for an ambulance. It might take 12 hours in Brooklyn. So I started seeing the inequality. And about that time, because of my parents' separation, I spent a lot of time alone. I was a boy preacher, so a lot of the kids found it awkward praying with a guy uh, that their parents were going to hear preach. So I started reading a lot of books and I, books, and I picked up a book by a guy named Claude Lewis about Adam Clayton Powell. And Adam Clayton Powell was a preacher, so that attracted me, but a politician and a civil rights activist. And as I read his book about Adam Clayton Powell, and got my mother convinced her to let me go to Harlem and try to see Adam Clayton Powell, which I did and got to be around him. That started me at a very young age in activism. And I started getting involved a lot in uh, the campaign to keep Adam Clayton Powell in Congress. They were trying to expel him for some allegations. And uh, my mother got concerned. She was a fundamentalist church of God in Christ woman, wanted me to stay in the church. Why is he going to all of these rallies? He's only 11, 12 years old. She took me to our bishop, Bishop Washington. Bishop Washington said, I know what to do. And he took us to uh, Reverend William Jones, who was the head of Dr. King's organization in New York. Uh, Dr. King was killed that year. I just turned 13 that October uh, before King was killed in April. And uh, uh, Reverend Jones says, I know what to do with him. I'll put him over our youth division of our chapter. And the Reverend Jones introduced me to Jesse Jackson. Jesse became my role model. And the rest was history. I grew up youth director, breadbasket on the former own youth group. On and on and on. So I never knew anything in life other than the ministry and activism since I was a kid. I mean, that's an impressive story. Talk a little bit about one of the more fascinating parts about your life's story and something that most people don't know. But somebody who I actually think doesn't get enough credit for their civil rights activism, the greatest entertainer of all time, who actually put on the greatest concert of all time in Massachusetts after Dr. King was assassinated, helped keep the city from burning down. Talk about your relationship with 
none other than we, we, we keep him in South Carolina. He was born in beach Island. I know Augusta claims him, but he's from South Carolina. Talk about James Brown and your relationship with Mr. Brown. James Brown had a son that was my age, Teddy Brown. And uh, Teddy had come to New York, wanted to go to Columbia University Law School. And while he was in New York, a few months later, he joined my youth group. And we didn't really know that much about Teddy Louis from the South. Unfortunately, Teddy, a few months in, got killed in a car accident. And James Brown, uh, uh, we found, was his father. James Brown contacted the local disc jockeys in New York and said he wanted to do a memorial for Teddy. But he was having friction with some of the guys in Harlem because James Brown had went out with Floyd McKissick and them and endorsed Nixon in 72. This was 1973, I was 19 years old. And they said, well, there's this teenage preacher as a youth group, your son was involved. If you do it for them, uh, nobody's going to bark you. Nobody's going to pick it down. We did a concert. James Brown started soloing out. He liked me. He said, you remind me the same zeal as, as uh, Teddy. And about two weeks later, he uh, sent me to come give him an award on Soul Train, which Soul Train those days like doing meet the press time sport. And uh, we started staying in touch. And over a period of time, we had a father-son uh, relationship. You know, a lot of writers that do write about it said I became like a road manager. I was never a road manager. I was a, just companion sometimes. He sent me on the weekend. And I think in many ways, though we had a lot of other kids, I became a replacement for Teddy. And uh, you talk about Beach Island. I spent uh, many uh, days at Beach Island in his estate, which was rare because James Brown didn't let people in his house. And uh, I'm, you can count on both hands the people he led past that big gate. But he had 62 acres in Beach Island. And I rode with him up to uh, uh, places to see his aunt who uh, lived in, in a Bamberg. Bamberg, yep. Yeah. And, he, yeah. and he, put his mama, he put his mama over there in Bamberg. That was seven. James used to come through Denmark on his way to Bamberg, and he rolled down the window of his limousine and hand out $100 bills. That's right. I, well, I've, I've gone through those rides with him. James Brown, I always say uh, to guys around me and ladies around me that James Brown became the father that left me. He literally was like a father. He'd reprimand me, tell me to do these things at all. Even though our policies were different. Jesse was my teacher. James Brown was my father. I love that, man. I'm glad we were able to get to that. Let's talk a little bit about uh, your new book, Righteous Troublemakers. Um, you are that. Uh, some of us are trying to be that. Me and Ben Crump and many others who are out here trying to do that work. Uh, why did you write this book? Who is your audience? And what do you want your readers to get from it? Well, first of all, you and Ben Crump are certainly righteous troublemakers, don't underestimate your impact and what you've done, among other things, but for the Charleston Nine families, amazing. Uh, and your start. But let me say, uh, I always was very sensitive that there were people that never got credit for what they did in the movement. You know this, and your father knows this. And in 2020, in the middle of the pandemic, uh, I preached the funeral of George Floyd. I worked with family work with Ben. And I called just in the middle of the eulogy for a march on Washington. We had no plans, had not they got a permit, didn't raise a dime. Uh, but we were able to put it together in three months. When we got to Washington that day, over 200,000 people came out in a pandemic. And I remember as I was going to the stage, the family of George Floyd was there, family of Breonna Taylor, everybody was there. 
all the families. And we're going to stand there on the steps where Dr. King and the 63 watch with Martin Luther King III was with us. And coming through the crowd, a man, an older man, looked like he might have been in his 80s, like jumping up and down with something in his hands. So I told the security detail around us, I said, wait a minute, see what that old man wants. He's trying to tell us something. And they brought him over and he showed me a button. He said, Reverend Al, I was here in 63 with Dr. King. Here's a button. It said, March on Washington. Uh, I think Freedom Now was at the bottom of the button. He says, and I want to be here today with you. And I hugged him, thanked him, and they ushered us off up to the steps of the, of the uh, Lincoln Memorial. And I thought about that days later. And I said, nobody knows that man's name. Nobody knows his story. But he was there in 63 and back here in 2020. These are the people that made a movement, the foot soldiers, the ones that were at the back of the line, knew they weren't going to be on TV that night, knew their name wasn't going to be in the paper, but they made the movements. If they would not been there, they wouldn't have worked. And I said, we need to tell the stories of people that people never heard of. So I started doing research, and I asked my staff at National Action Network, I said, do you ever hear of Claudette Coleman? They said, no. I said, Claudette Coleman was a young, very young black girl who sat in the front of the bus in Montgomery, refused to give up her seat in Montgomery, Alabama, nine months before Rosa Parks. They arrested her because she wouldn't give up her seat. The people in Montgomery, black people, didn't want to use her as a symbol to fight because she was too dark-skinned. Yep. It was colorism at that time. And she was pregnant and not married. I wanted to write her story. I asked, do you know attorney Paulie Murray? Everybody, no, never heard of him. Paulie Murray was one of these legal minds that wrote a lot of legal work. That Thurgood Marshall used some of that in Brown versus the Board of Education. So I wrote one to write a book since I have these platforms now uh, that and have my share limelight. I wanted to put a limelight on some of the troublemakers that never got credit. In it is telling stories of movements that people never knew happened. And I think that it is incumbent on those of us that when we get a little light, put a light on some of these people. And I wanted people to read their stories. Why? Because I want people to know it was ordinary people That's that right. we had things in their lives that we've had in ours, but that they, despite whatever mistakes they made, despite whatever their situation was, they were the ones that were the pillars of the movement. And I want to tell their story. Everybody should have in their house the stories of these people because these people paid the price and never got anything for them. <laughs> Look at you with your critical race theory out there, Reverend Sharp, and teaching people <laughs> about, <laughs> about this history. What, what lessons um, from this book and just from your life, what lessons from those unsung heroes do you think are instructive for activists now, especially as it looks like the momentum we saw post-George Floyd is starting to wear off and that window of opportunity for policy change seems to be closing. What lessons do you want the activists of today to take from these unsung heroes? I, I think the lessons, and, and I write a lot about it in the book about how these people were, is that movements are usually exactly what you just said. They go through peaks and valleys, ups and downs. And the real soldiers are the ones that are there when it's not trending. Uh, you yep. know, social media uh, and you never know what is going to catch on and what's not going to catch on. And you've got to be there for the long run, but you must have a goal that 
lest you're going to change laws of policy that will outlast the moment and will outlast even your relevance, then what are you in it for? You're not in it because you want to get likes on Facebook or Instagram. You're in it for laws, which is why uh, we said in the middle of the momentum, we need the George Floyd Policing Act. We yeah. need to deal with Voting Rights Act. And we're still on it. You're right. A lot of the momentum is gone, but those of us that was in it are still pressing. Joe Biden just last week came out finally saying the filibuster shouldn't stand in the way of the Voting Rights Act. Behind that, we've got to go back into George Floyd Act. And I want people to learn movements are only successful if they make concrete change that outlasts the participants. Otherwise, it was a moment, but it wasn't a movement. Hey, man, let me ask you a little bit about that. I was going to get to those politics, but that's, a, I mean, you must do TV, Reverend Sharpton. That was a natural, <laughs> a natural segue. A little bit. Uh, a little bit. <laughs> Lita Schumer announced that the Senate would be considering changes to the filibuster on MLK weekend with the hopes of paving the way for voting rights legislation, which I think it, it's amazing to me. I was looking for some reason. Oh, because he just passed. I was researching Bob Dole. And in 1982, 83, Bob Dole was the individual who led the effort to reauthorize the Voting Rights Act. And we can't even get 10 Republicans today to sign on to it. But like everything else, Manchin and Cinema have said that they don't support changes to the rules uh, for a carve out to the filibuster for voting rights. What do you think? You've seen this politics. You've seen the ebb and flows. What, what do you what do you think ultimately happens here? I think ultimately uh, we need what is beginning to happen now. Schumer to call the vote. The president come out strong and he has to keep coming out strong and force Manchin and Cinema to on the record go against their whole caucus. And one of two things will happen. Either they will say, well, let's find another way around because they've done carve outs for judicial nominees. They've done carve outs for uh, uh, any of the budgetary concerns. What is more fundamental? They'll carve out around the filibuster for the right to vote to be protected. That's the basis of the American experiment. I think that that pressure must stay on from people emailing their senators, writing, but those of us that are in those rooms to keep the pressure on and force the vote. And I think the vote in and of itself will put pressure on Manchin and them. Already in our meetings and conversations with Manchin, he's beginning to say, well, Let's try to do something in these ways. Now, you got to remember, he said, well, they won't vote for this bill. Let me draft the bill. And he passed right. yep. the bill of uh, freedom to vote. He couldn't get one Republican to go with his bill. So yep. you're right. Not only can't we get 10 Republicans to make the filibuster, he can't get one on his freedom to vote bill. We need to keep this going because there's a showdown. And I think finally, with Schumer calling the vote and the president coming out, we have an opportunity at worst to make a roll call, at best to uh, push uh, those two Democrats and get a rule change. The whole defense of saying, well, the Democrats, cinema, and them saying, well, if we do it, the Republicans will do it when they're in power. If the Republicans get back in power, they're going to do it anyway. You know I, they I don't are. think anybody in their right mind think Mitch McConnell would say, oh, well, y'all didn't do it, so I'm not going to do it. He will do it. He did it for Trump, and he will do it again. We need to do it for the people to have protection of the right to vote. I mean, he did it for three Supreme Court justices, so let's not exactly. act like he ain't, he ain't going to do it again. You know, my brother Charlemagne, the guy, got a lot of pushback for asking the president, the vice president about uh, Joe Manchin. 
but there are a lot of people listening. I mean, I know you're in the room with him and, and he will take your call. Well, he might've used to take your calls. I guess he, he might still take them every now and then, but what can, what can the average person do to help the president and the national action network in their push to get Joe Manchin and cinema to do things like pass voting rights or pass build back better. What can, what can we do out here in these streets to make that happen? I think we need to stay, continue rallying, but everybody may not rally. Everybody has two U.S. senators from their state. They should be emailing and or calling their senators office because it's no loss when a senator's secretarial staff is saying, we got 100 calls a day on voting rights from people that live in our state that say they're watching voting. They want you to talk to senator. They want you to talk to Manchin. Everybody can do that. You can do that sitting in the cubicle at work. You can do it at home. Everybody just, your two senators. Because if they keep talking about them being overwhelmed in their offices by their own constituents, it makes them push because then they're afraid of the voting backlash that they will suffer. You know, talking about our home senators, I think that I was a little naive. And sometimes that happens at 37 because I actually had faith in my good friend, Tim Scott, who served with me in the state house that we were going to pass George Floyd Justice and Policing Act. I thought that was something he honestly wanted to get done, but we it, it just fell apart. So let's say we don't get criminal justice reform done. What do you think we need to see from the Biden administration and Department of Justice to compel the type of reforms and oversight we need from local police departments and sheriff's offices? I think that we need to push for the laws. And if we cannot get them, then we need to ask and put the, uh, uh, the, the real strength we have on the president to issue executive orders as far as he can. There's some things he can do with executive order. Now, we've not asked for that uh, publicly yet because we don't want to let the Senate off the hook on George Floyd bill. But when it appears, and, that, and that's coming sooner than later, that we cannot get that through, we will be saying to Joe Biden and Dave, let's do something with executive orders. There must be something there. Uh, Monday and, and uh, uh, coming I'm going to uh, Los Angeles to preach the funeral of that young 14-year-old Latina that was killed by a bullet that mm -hmm. went through the dressing room door. Uh, I mean, the cases that you and Ben Crump and Lee Merritt and, and uh, uh, others have had the case. I mean, y'all can't handle enough cases. And it took the thing that bothers me more than anything is it's become normalized to where people are like, no. And we've got to tell people, you could be the next victim. This is not something that happened. Walter Scott wasn't uh, an activist. They didn't shoot him because he was a troublemaker in town. Yeah. Uh, the, the same with George Floyd. These are ordinary people. That's your cousin. That's your nephew. And if you don't help us stop this, you will be one calling Barkari Sellers to come represent you soon. Uh, and listen, I, I talk to Ben about it all the time, and we – we were sitting in the back of the car where you preached the, the eulogy. We were headed over to the funeral of Andrew Brown in Elizabeth City. Right. And we, were, we were both thinking that if, if we did not have this part of our practice, we would be quite happy. You know, if we didn't have to represent these families, that this was not something that came to our doorstep because these families never anticipate that they would be a part of this fraternity. Um, look, a couple more questions before I let you go. I, I know you're busy. Talk to me about, I always ask authors this question because I felt this way when I was writing my book, but how did writing this book change you? I think the way it changed me is it made me go back into scenes because I talk a lot in there 
about some of the things. I talk about some of what we went through with George Floyd and some of the heroes in that, in that case that people didn't know. And it puts you back in the scene where you start reflecting and thinking about, wow, what did this really mean? Why did you say that? Why did this person say that? I, I, I think sometimes we operate so quickly in the moment that we never step back out of the moment and look at it. And it made me more sensitive to what we do and how it impacts people. Uh, I remember uh, we were getting ready to get in the cars to go to George Floyd's funeral. And I write about this in the book. And George's son walked over to me in the lobby of the hotel. We were getting ready to get in the cars. And he said, you know, uh, my little sister said, my father's going to change the world. I said, yeah, I think he will. People marching all over the world. And he said, and that was President Obama just got off the phone with us. My father really changed the world. And it, for the first time writing about it, I thought about this kid on one day looking at his father. And they, they you know, his father moved to a different state now. And the next day, his father's this simple. What did this mean to this kid? And how many other kids are like that around the country? I think writing the book was sort of uh, therapeutic for me to begin to de- uh, 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 construct these things and deal with the fact that we're talking about human beings who are thrust into things that you and I are used to every day, but they're not, and that we've gotten a real debt to their lives to help change those lives. Uh, when will the book be available, and how can people uh, buy it? book will be in every bookstore on Monday coming, uh, Monday the 10th of January, and they can pre-order going to www.alshoppingbooks.com. From there, you can go to Amazon or Barnes & Noble, wherever you buy your books and pre-order it and get it now. I love that. My last question for you before I let you go, I wanted to talk a little bit about your longtime friend and the new mayor of New York City, Eric Adams. You know him well. It seems like folks don't know what to make of the mayor. What do you, why do you think he is such an interesting guy or figure for people who write and follow uh, the New York City politics? And what can New Yorkers expect from him as mayor of the city? Well, Eric Adams, uh, 35 years ago, uh, became a police officer. He was involved in uh, the movement under uh, activists in New York, Reverend Herbert Dorch, who encouraged young Black guys go in the force and change from the inside. I, coming in the King movement in New York, as I told you growing up, you got to remember in New York, New York was not the South. And New York was more of Malcolm's town than Mark's town. So yeah, it was pretty right. popular what I was doing. And uh, uh, it wasn't popular when he became a cop because many of the activists were saying, don't join the police, you know, fight the police. So he and I kind of backed into each other because we had the common isolation of some of the activist communities. So we knew each other well. I started National Action Network in 91. I had known him five or six years. He'd come to some of the rallies I had done around Bensonhurst and the Central Park Five. Even as a cop, he was fighting for reform. So when I started National Action Network, I started Saturday rallies in Harlem. He came, and our lawyer attorney, Michael Hardy, uh, said, you know, we're going to have to incorporate if we're going to raise money and open offices, hire staff, and we need to get several people that are signed and be incorporated. Eric Adams was one of the incorporators of the network. Now, he always had his own way. He has his own kind of way of thinking. He is an activist, but he's also very practical. 
There will probably be some disagreements on some of the fine print with some of the so-called progressives. But I'm, I know that he is certainly as hard as right. And he's not afraid. He's not intimidated. You can't walk the beat New York 24 years and be intimidated. I think you're going to get an honest mayor, a straight mayor, and a guy that wants to see things done. He's 61 years old. He's not a kid. He wants to build a legacy that he turned New York for the better and turned it around. And I think that's what you're going to see. The reason why uh, a lot of people in the media are perplexed is you never had a guy that was both a police reformer and a policeman, uh, a black guy, but was comfortable with everybody. He, He is the makeup of something they've never seen, which means he can get things done that has not been done. Amen to that. Reverend Sharpton, thank you for being the hero that you are. I'm from South Carolina. We always say that you got to give people their flowers while they're living. So we say thank you for everything that you have done, everything you will do, my brother. And thank you for joining the show today. Thank you, Bakari. You know, you're one of my favorites. And and, uh, it helps me. I'm 67, 30 years older than you. Helps me to know that the movement will continue no matter how long I last. That's right. Amen. Be easy, man. Have a great day. All right. Peace. All right. Peace.